Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, we do rejoice this morning because you came. You came to provide salvation and redemption. You came to reveal God and his glory to us. And we rejoice in all that you have done in that coming. Lord, we also look forward with longing to that day when you will come again. To wipe away every tear from our eyes, to put an end to sin, to wickedness, to rebellion and corruption to put an end to death itself, to establish your eternal kingdom, to raise your children to eternal and glorified bodies, to display your goodness and your glory and your grace for all of eternity, unfiltered, unhindered by all of the effects of the curse that we deal with today. So Lord, as we remember that first coming, increase our longing for your return and deepen our appreciation, our admiration for you. Deepen our love for you. I pray that you would Expand our joy, enrich our sense of comfort and peace in knowing you, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray this now, asking for your help in your name. Amen. The theme for uh, our sermons through the month of December is taken from Luke chapter 2, from that text of scripture that we already read together this morning. Andrew read this verse for us in Luke chapter 2 as the angel comes and makes an announcement to the shepherds. He says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy. That's what we are aiming to really meditate on and reflect on over the the several weeks we have together during the month of December. As Christians, as believers, we do take joy and we find delight in the gifts of family and their traditions of the holidays, all that goes with it. But true joy, great joy, is really found in the good news. It's found in the gospel. That is the good news of great joy, an incomparable joy, a joy that is, is eternal, a joy that has substance, a joy that we really need. Last week, we began by considering together the source of this joy, tracing the rays of light back to the sun itself, as it were, considering God himself. The birth of Jesus fuels a God-centered joy because it displays to us the providence of God, the wisdom of God, shows us the very heart of God, his love towards us, his mercy, his grace. But today I want to build on that concept by meditating not only on God as the source of our great joy, but by reflecting on Christ as the subject of that great joy. We know that God is the giver, but we receive from him Christ, who is the gift. The good news of great joy is that unto us a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. And the greatness of our joy really reflects the greatness of this gift. So in response to all that God has done for us through Christ, I want to consider what the Apostle Paul exclaimed in 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's what we have received, is an indescribable gift. It's impossible to fully describe or explain the glory and the grace of, of what we have received in Christ. However, I do want to explore that gift this morning, to meditate on, to marvel at, to delight in Christ and all that he is for us, to think about what it means 
that unto us a son is given. There's three blessings I want to look at this morning that we receive in Christ. The first is that in Christ we have received revelation from God. Christ is God's revelation to us. Christ is given to us as revelation. Second, in Christ we have redemption by God. This is Christ given for us. He is our redemption. And then third, we'll consider our relationship with God through Christ. The miraculous mystery of Christ in us, our union with him. So revelation, redemption, and relationship. These three blessings we'll consider together. Let's look at number one, first and foremost. In Jesus, we receive revelation from God. That is what Christ is to us, is God's revelation of himself. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that God cannot be seen by sinful man and live. That's the assumption of all of these different characters in the Old Testament. When they encounter something of God's divine presence, they are afraid because they anticipate they're probably going to die. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, for example, we find Jacob, the patriarch, wrestling with this stranger throughout the night. And as it becomes clear to him that he's just had an encounter with God, he names the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob understood and recognized no sinful man can actually see God and live. In Exodus 3, several generations later, at the burning bush, God speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Later, when the tabernacle and a number of years after that, the temple, when those structures were put together, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence and God's glory, was stationed in the innermost sanctuary, and it was veiled by a great curtain. And only the high priest could enter into that presence, and he only once a year. When Isaiah had a vision of the glory of God in the heavenly temple, when he saw what he knew that no one was supposed to see under normal circumstances, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man cannot see God and live. Paul says in 2 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, refers to him as who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But in the coming of Jesus into the world, God allows us to see. He manifests himself. He reveals himself to mankind. What was once impossible, what was once a sacred mystery, is unveiled to us in Christ the Apostle John put it this way in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We cannot see God, but we can see Jesus. And in fact, as we read this verse, it becomes clear that when people in the Old Testament did have an encounter with God, what they were beholding was the pre-incarnate Son of God. They were beholding the second person of the Trinity, making the Father known. John later would write in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. John understands exactly who Jesus is, that he is God, and he is the manifestation, the revelation of God himself. You see, there's some things we can know about God through creation. God reveals himself through his created works. There's, there's things we can discern about God, even th- to a certain extent through our own human reasoning, because we're made in God's image and his fingerprints are on everything, including even our own sense of, of reason. But there are some things that simply cannot be known, things that could never be seen apart from Jesus Christ. He is uniquely the revelation of God. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, the final word. He is God's highest and best revelation. He is the most explicit, the most clear, the most complete revelation of God. So what is it that Jesus reveals to us? Well, Jesus is, first of all, a revelation of the person of God. Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He reveals the person of God. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He helps us to see what cannot be seen, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, 9 says that in him, the the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God is in Christ. He is the fullness of God. That's why the angel told Joseph that they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As Jesus comes, he reveals to us the person of God, which means he's revealing to us the very glory of God. Glory reveals to God's majesty. Glory is the expression of God's perfections. It is all of his attributes, his very essence radiating forth. Again, to go back to John chapter one, John writes that the word, this revelation of God, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Jesus reveals the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. This glory that we are all seeking, this glory that is imprinted, stamped on our hearts, Ecclesiastes says that eternity is written on man's heart. We're made for this. We're seeking it. We're longing for it. You will not find it outside of Christ in its fullness and in its glory. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Yes, we can see a measure of God's glory in creation. We can see the beauty of a sunset, right? We can see the, 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 the startling mystery of the human body, how it's designed, how it works. We can consider the perfect balance of our solar system. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can look at the majesty of a mountain range and see God's handiwork and his power and his wisdom but we see an even greater glory in the person of Christ. In Christ, we see the wisdom of God. In Christ, we see the love of God. In Christ, we see the authority of God. In Christ, we see the righteousness of God. In Christ, we see the holiness of God and the faithfulness of God, the compassion of God, the justice of God. It's all displayed in Christ in ways that otherwise we would not and could not perceive. 
Jesus is God's revelation of himself and his glory. He's also the revelation of the very truth of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus reveals the truth of God. John 1.17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 18, verse 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus reveals the truth of God to us in ways that otherwise we we could not access that truth. Uh, Apart from Jesus, we could not know these truths. Apart from Jesus, we would not be be able to understand and receive these truths. Jesus comes to reveal the truth of God. And he does this by embodying the truth of God. He is the word made flesh, the embodiment of God's truth. He says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. Paul says in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the revelation of the truth of God. So why do we reflect on all of these things, that Jesus is God's revelation to us? Well, when you consider this Christmas the gift of Christ, that unto you a son is given, consider this, that God has not left us in the dark. That's part of the message of Christmas. He's not left us to grope around, searching for truth, trying to to catch a glimpse of God's glory, trying to figure out who God is and what God is like. We're not, it's not up to us to somehow by our own efforts and our own reasoning and our own seeking to ascend into heaven and discover God. No, in his grace, he has descended to earth. He came here to reveal himself to us. He has not hidden himself from us. He has not left us ignorant. He has revealed himself, his glory, his truth, all through the person of Jesus. That's what Christ is to us, the very revelation of God. There's a second blessing we receive in Christ. Not only is Jesus God's revelation to us, he's also God's redemption for us. In Jesus, we have redemption. Christ is not just given to us. Christ was also given for us to redeem us. Ephesians 1.7 says that in him, in Christ, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Christ is our redemption. To redeem means to to purchase. Has this idea of rescuing, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. That's why he was born. He came to save his people from their sins. Listen to how Jesus describes his mission Listen to how Jesus describes why he was born. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Christ for us. He is our redemption. He came to ransom many. To ransom means to pay the price You say, why is this necessary? Why do we need ransoming? Why do we need redemption? What is it that has to be purchased? Well, listen, God is holy and sin must be judged. 
Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. There is a cost. There is a price that must be paid because of our sin. And this redemption is not something that only some people need. It's not just redemption for for those who are addicts, for those who who have committed crimes, for those who maybe uh, feel depressed or those who who have a broken life that, that everyone looks at and they see, wow, that person is struggling. The need for this redemption is universal. Self-righteous people need to be redeemed. Successful people need to be redeemed. People that appear to have a measure of happiness need to be redeemed. This is a universal need. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ came to meet that need. This is really the reason for the season. We say Jesus is the reason for the season, and and yes, but Jesus had to come and be born because of our sin. Our fallen condition can also be thought of as a reason for the season. We are sinners who need a savior And that's why the birth of Christ is necessary. Jesus comes because you and I, apart from Christ, are destined for judgment, destined for death, destined for an eternity under the wrath of God in hell. And we deserve so because of our rebellion against God. But God in his goodness and in his grace has provided salvation for us, has provided redemption for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our redemption. You see, he's the only one who has not fallen short of the glory of God. He's perfectly righteous. He is God in the flesh who reveals the glory of God. And he came to pay the penalty that we owe. It's by his death and resurrection that Jesus takes our place and secures salvation for us. Christmas is really just the prequel to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's the main event. And that is why Jesus came. We often think about this salvation, this redemption, as coming through Christ and from Christ. And we think about it as something that Jesus does for us, as his work. It's something that Jesus does. But I also think we can... Consider together that salvation is also what Jesus is for us. It's not just what he does. Salvation, redemption is also what Jesus is. Jesus speaks about himself as the bread of life, that he is something for us that brings life. He says, I am the light of the world. Not just that he gives light, that he is the light. He says, I am the door. Not just that he shows us where the way to salvation is. He himself is the way. I am the resurrection and the life. Not just that Jesus provides resurrection and gives us life as if it's distinct from himself. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. When we experience salvation and redemption, Jesus is giving himself to us. We do not simply come to Christ to get salvation. No, we come to Christ to receive Christ. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. He is our life. And as we embrace Christ, believing this good news, that he is our redemption, this is the key to joy. Listen to 1 Peter 1.8. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what is given to us in Christ. Joy 
that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When we receive Christ, that joy is made ours. Charles Spurgeon, who is a pastor and a theologian, gives this word of pastoral wisdom. Commenting on this verse, he says, you may be thinking, but all of God's people do not experience this joy. Maybe that describes you today. Spurgeon considers, er, comments, sad to say, I agree. Not all of God's people experience this joy. But I also add that it is their own fault. It is the right of every believer to live in the assurance that he is reconciled to God, that God loves him, and that he is God's child. If he does not live this way, he has only himself to blame. If there is any starving at God's table, it is because the guest cheats himself, for the feast is superabundant. If, however, a believer begins to consistently live with a sense of pardon through the sprinkling of the precious blood and with a delightful sense of perfect reconciliation with the great God, he will possess a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I pray that you will begin to live in this way. Spurgeon's words may feel convicting, may even seem a bit harsh, that those who don't have this joy, they need encouraged, and they do. But Spurgeon makes sure that Christ is never blamed for a Christian's lack of joy. A rich feast has been spread. Christ is our redemption. He is our salvation. He is our life. He is the resurrection. He is the bread. He is the door. And Christ has given himself for us. The good news of great joy is that God has given salvation in his son. This is Christ for us. He is salvation and all of its benefits. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. Apart from Jesus, there is no light. Apart from Jesus, there is no door. There is no other way. There is no other hope of resurrection. If Jesus does not come, if God does not give us his son, then there is no redemption for sinners. If Jesus doesn't come, you and I are still under the headship of Adam, and we are still in our sins. We are still alienated from God. We're still under his judgment. But the angel comes bringing good news of great joy that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In Jesus, we receive not only revelation from God, in Jesus, we have redemption. This is Christ given for us. I want to turn now to the third blessing. Christ is the revelation of God. He is God's redemption. And then third, in Jesus, we enjoy relationship with God. This is the reality of Christ in us. This miraculous mystery of our union with Christ. Through our union with Christ, we experience communion with God. We relate to him as we are in Christ and Christ is in us. You see, salvation results in a number of amazing benefits. Yes, we are forgiven of our sins. We are set free from our spiritual bondage. We're given a new nature. We are made alive. We are rescued from hell. We are destined for heaven. But at the heart of all of these benefits, the hub of this glorious this, this whole portrait of our salvation, 
At the heart of it is a restored relationship with God. That's really what salvation is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul describes our salvation, this, the result of Christ's work on the cross, as reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with God. We are reconciled through Christ as our sins are removed. Our sins are nailed to the cross and, are, and we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Then the barrier between us and God is removed and we are restored to God. And friends, this relationship that we have with God, this reconciliation that we enjoy, it's not a long-distance relationship. God is not far off, smiling from a distance. No, we are united to Christ through faith. We are in him, spiritually speaking, and he is in us. I love how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He says, because of him, because of God, because of what God is doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Perhaps you've not explored this truth. If not, I would, I would urge you to reflect on it this month. What does it mean that we have union with Christ, that you are in Christ Jesus? The Apostle Paul dwelt long and hard on that truth. He was able to tell the Galatians, it is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. He refers in Colossians 1 to the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about the riches of the glory of this mystery, that Christ, who is the very revelation of God, who is our redemption, that Christ is in us, that's the hope of glory. Colossians 3, verse 3 says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is spiritual riches. That is spiritual safety. That is spiritual assurance. That gives you a foundation for identity. That is everything for us as Christians, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. This mystery is not something we can fully explain. It's not something we can fully comprehend. Rather, it's something we are called to admire, to marvel at, something we relish because this union with Christ is everything for the Christian. It's not just part of our Christian life. It's not just one of the blessings of the gospel. This is the Christian life, that we are made one with Christ. The New Testament describes this union with Christ in a number of ways. We see in Ephesians that he is the head of the body, and we are members of that body, Ephesians chapter 4. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that Christ is like a husband to the church. The church collectively is as his bride. This is a, a, a covenantal picture that describes love and intimacy and care and permanency. Marriage between a husband and a wife, this one flesh union that even at the human level of marriage is a mystery. It points beyond itself to this glorious reality of Christ's union with the church. 
Christ is the head. Christ is the husband. Jesus describes himself in John 15 as the vine. Nourishing, providing life, giving strength to the branches so that the branches bear fruit. This is our union with Christ. And these realities of what we have in Christ, our union with Jesus, these are more than just doctrines. If this feels like a doctrinal theological message, it is, but it's more than that. The reality of our union with Christ is an experience. It's not just a doctrine. It's an experience that is given to every Christian, that we are made one with Christ, united with Christ through faith. And it's an experience that ought to produce great joy. This union with Christ is at the heart of our justification. Because we are united with Christ through faith, our sins are given to Christ and his righteousness is given to us. This union with Christ is at the heart of our sanctification. If Christ is in us, if he dwells in our hearts through faith, this empowers and produces change so that we become more like Christ. This union with Christ ultimately leads to our glorification because one day we will share in his resurrection life as we are, we are raised from the dead. We will see him face to face. We will be made fully like him. Our union with Christ is at the heart of our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. It's everything for the Christian. Paul prays that we would be conscious of this reality and that we would treasure it, that we would comprehend it. In Ephesians 3, 17, he prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is through faith that Christ dwells in our hearts and we are filled with the fullness of God. What does it mean that a son is given? It means that we have relationship with God because we experience real, true communion with God through our union with Christ. You see, the Christmas story about this baby being born in a cattle stall and laid in a manger this is not some mere sentimental story about humble beginnings and some friendly shepherds and some wise men who come to give gifts. This is not merely supposed to be mildly inspirational that we would look on the humility of Christ and his sweetness towards his mother and sort of be warmed and maybe write some Hallmark cards. The story of Christmas is far more profound it is far deeper, far greater, far more glorious than just this generic peace and generic goodwill towards men. Consider what God has given us in Christ. He has revealed himself to us. He has provided redemption through Christ. And he has restored our relationship with him by bringing us through faith into this glorious union with his son, Jesus Christ. That is what we have been given. That is the good news of great joy. Friend, if you don't yet know Christ, if you're here this morning listening to us talk about what God has done in sending his son and talking about sin and talking about Christ's death and talking about the blessings of salvation, listen, if you don't know Christ, if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, none of these blessings are yours right now. You are still far from God. 
You are still in your sins. You are still under his judgment. You have not yet received his revelation. To this point, you've been blind to it. You've rejected it. You've not yet experienced his redemption. His blood has not yet cleansed you from sin. You are not yet reconciled with the Father. He actually calls you his enemy. You do not have union with Christ. You are far from God. But it doesn't have to stay that way. The good news for you is that a Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. And I urge you this morning to come to him, to believe this good news, that God has given all of this to us through Christ. Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Embrace him through faith. Listen, the greatest lie that Satan will ever tell you is that coming to Jesus is not worth it. He will minimize this blessing and he will minimize your need for Christ. But Jesus is worth it. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The only reason you would sell everything you have with a smile on your face and buy a field is if you believe in the worth and the value and the preciousness of the treasure that is in that field. That's the only way it makes sense. Listen, today you are hearing about a field and the greatest treasure that is in that field You are hearing good news about Jesus Christ, the revelation, the knowledge of God, the glory of God, the truth of God on display, who gave himself for you to provide redemption and salvation, who offers you reconciliation with God, who offers to come and to make his home in you. You're hearing good news of this offer, and the question is, will you rejoice in God's gift? Will you receive him, or will you say no to such astonishing grace as this. Brothers and sisters, it's not just the lost who need to hear today good news of great joy. Believers need to be reminded of Christ. Here's a little thought experiment for you, something to take with you today. What would change in your relationship with God? How would it affect your daily life if you were to grow in your grasp of everything that Christ is for us, how might that impact the way you think, your emotions, your choices, your confidence in life, your perspective on money, your perspective on death, your perspective on world events, your experience of family with all of its blessings and its trials, your experience of suffering, and loss, and grief? What would change if you had a greater, a deeper grasp of the glory of Christ and all that he is for us? If I could read from another dead pastor who gives wise counsel, John Owen once wrote this. If I have observed anything by experience, it is this. A man may take the measure of his growth and decay in grace according to his thoughts and meditations on the person of Christ and the glory of Christ's kingdom and of his love. Believer, do not neglect him. Do not forget him. 
Do not despise him by seeking for joy in lesser gifts. It is only when we treasure Christ, seeing him rightly, receiving him humbly, that we can experience true joy. So let me simply admonish you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember Jesus. Treasure Jesus. Speak to your loved ones of Jesus. Exalt the name and the person and the work and the promises of Jesus in this church. See his glory and grace and rejoice. The greatness of our joy reflects the greatness of God's gift. May your joy this Christmas season reflect the greatness of Christ and all that he is for us. Father, I feel so inadequate to describe the goodness and the glory of Christ, and I confess that in my own heart there is need for a greater view of Christ, a greater delight in his goodness, his glory, his grace. I need a greater understanding of the majesty of the gospel, the glory of the redemption that has been provided through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you grant us a greater vision of Christ this morning? Would you expand our heart to treasure him more, love him more, to rejoice in all that he is for us? As we celebrate Christmas this year, I pray that these familiar songs, these familiar traditions, I pray that they would serve as an on-ramp for us to really meditate on Jesus. Lord, for those who find this difficult, for those who are not able today to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, I pray that you would meet them where they are and minister grace to them. Lord, our flesh is too weak to somehow seek out and give ourselves the vision of Christ that we need. We need you to come to us. You did it 2,000 years ago, and we believe you will do it today that you will meet us with your grace by your spirit, by taking the word, applying it to our heart, strengthening our souls. I pray that in this church, Christ would be treasured, not just in our corporate worship, not just as the center of a sermon. I pray that he would be treasured in the hearts and in the homes of the people present here today. And that as we consider Christ, you would fill us with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. As we consider our salvation, the knowledge of revelation, the redemption, the relationship that is ours through Christ. Amen.